His talk has to do with how political concepts travel and what modifications theory should make to account for that travel. In other words, to account for changes in context. My general focus is on the Americas whose conceptualization is inseparable from indigenous dispossession and the enslavement of Africans. While both dispossession and slavery operate through rights denial, given the limited time I have in this talk, my more specific focus will be on settler responsibility amidst ongoing expropriation of indigenous land. I understand such expropriation as an ethical failure. And what I wanna think with y'all about today is how rights claims offer a way to respond to such a failure. My hypothesis is that rights claims by raising questions of land and title in a register widely understood could serve as a transitional language, as a way of turning up pressure and starting conversations in order to go from our present marked by dispossession and extraction to a future where American states honor treaties and where the building of pipelines such as Keystone, Trans Mountain, Dakota Access, or Line 3 is revalued from a narrow understanding as creating jobs to a more expansive understanding as a crime against humanity. Such a revaluing matters as American states continue to criminalize water protectors for praying, while companies such as Enbridge in effect subsidize state police forces by paying the costs those forces incur to surveil, harass, and otherwise deny constitutionally guaranteed political rights at prayer camps. Stated differently, my hypothesis is that rights claims provide a normative foundation to name ethical and political violations and imply duties whose fulfillment require responsibilities between settlers and native peoples to be reimagined. Thus, rights claims could function as a necessary, but perhaps not sufficient and so transitional language to make sense of and evaluate some crises in the present. And here I want to thank the philosopher Troy Richardson for helping me frame some of this project. So to begin, I start from Hannah Arendt's use of the phrase, the right to have rights, in order to consider the foundations of rights claims. That is to consider on what rights, other rights are based. For some commentators, such as Shayla Benabib, the first right in Arendt's phrase is a right all individuals should have by virtue of being human. It is a moral and not a legal foundation for the very possibility of legal rights. Benabib argues that, quote, the first use of the term right is addressed to humanity as such and enjoins us to recognize membership in some human group. In this sense, the use of the term right evokes a moral imperative. Treat all human beings as persons belonging to some human group and entitled to the protection of the same, end quote. On Benabib's reading, the second right of the phrase, in fact, the plural rights, builds on the first right to membership and refers to the legal entitlements a citizen has, political rights, such as the right to assembly, social rights, such as the right to health care, and so on. In contrast to Benabib's understanding, Lyda Maxwell argues that people can perform a right to have rights. To have rights here would be like having a meeting or having a dinner party. In Maxwell's words, 
To have rights means to participate in staging, creating, and sustaining through protest legislation, collective action, or institution building. A common political world where the ability to legitimately claim and demand rights becomes a possibility for everyone. Making this to have a reality means helping to stage a common world where everyone can demand rights. On Maxwell's reading then, rights are not inviolable possessions, but rather fragile political achievements that are always imperfectly realized. Maxwell goes on to say that her understanding of human rights makes an advance on the claim to natural rights, echoes of which we perhaps hear in Benabib's claim to a moral right. A performative understanding of rights makes this advance, Maxwell says, because, quote, viewing the self as naturally possessing rights leads us to try to assure our rights primarily by protecting the self from others or attempting to render it invulnerable rather than opening ourselves to the risks and contingencies of the political action and institution building that will actually create and sustain the status of rights-bearing individuals, end quote. Offering a reading between Benny Beeb's sense of a moral quasi-natural right and Maxwell's sense of a performative right, Peg Birmingham argues that because the right to have rights requires appearing in public, it implies freedoms of expression and association, including associations that perform dissent against both people in power and within the group appearing in public. On this reading, the right to have rights is first a right to access the political space. And for Birmingham, the promise of this right is that it ultimately allows the appearance of new social forms. In other words, the right to have rights contributes to the polity's redefining itself through responding to the demands of the dissenting political actors. In this talk, I want to use some elements of the aforementioned author's readings to consider what the right to have rights means in the context of the Americas in the 21st century. I will draw on Benyabib's form of reading the first right as the base of the second right, but the content I, po I posit is different. My argument is that in the American context, the first right should compel justice-oriented actors to argue for and to demand the repatriation of federal land to indigenous nations, whom states such as the U.S. and Brazil have tried to cut off from the realm of public life by, among other things, forcing them onto reservations. Like the Nazi herding into ghettos and concentration camps that Arendt documents, American nation states have perpetrated such horrendous displacements and followed them with ongoing deprivations of indigenous rights, including rights to religion and voting rights. But the duty bearer for the right to have rights in the way I'm reading the phrase here is not just the nation state. I also wanna draw on Maxwell's reading of to have as a call to create and sustain a world where it is easier to demand and achieve rights. Indeed, to assume that indigenous nations are demanding simply increased state support such as achieving positive rights by asking the state to provide increased housing and education, can overlook claims to self-determination and the fact that in many cases, what is fundamentally at issue remains unseated land. Put differently, the state's corresponding duty to my reading of the right to have rights is not necessarily a positive duty, but might be understood as a negative duty, such as withdrawing from its occupation of indigenous land. 
Finally, I draw on Birmingham's argument that part of the promise of Arendt's focus on the new is that it allows a political community to redefine itself. What would be new here remains, to some extent, undecided, left up to the social movement still unfolding. But at least we could say it would reflect, for instance, what the United States might look like if it heeded the Lakota People's Law Project's call for not only a truth and healing commission, but also to return the Black Hills to the Lakota people. Now, admittedly, to start from Arendt's chapter in Origins of Totalitarianism, to theorize rights claims in the Americas runs into several challenges because the struggles of indigenous peoples in the Americas both resonate with and depart from the struggles of stateless European minorities in the 20th century, Arendt's focus. First, her we in the line, we became aware of the right to have rights, has to be European, because having suffered what Arendt calls the expulsion from humanity decades prior, indigenous peoples across the Americas were already aware of such rights denial caused by the formation of nation states. Second, discussing migrations of groups following World War I, Arendt notes, quote, once they had left their homeland, they remained homeless. Once they had left their state, they became stateless. Once they had been deprived of their human rights, they were rightless. Analogously, in the American context and in Arendt's words, quote, the first loss which the rightless suffered was the loss of their homes. And this meant the loss of the entire social texture into which they were born and in which they established for themselves a distinct place in the world, end quote. But it is not the case that the second loss which the rightless suffered, as Arendt says, in the Americas was the loss of government protection, because the role of the U.S. government was never one of protection in the first place. Native nations, the legal scholar Angela Riley comments, are mentioned expressly in the Constitution and yet largely remain beyond the reach of the Bill of Rights talking about U.S. law there. For another analogy, it is true that indigenous nations share with the Jewish refugees that they committed no crime. The new refugees, Arendt writes, were persecuted not because of what they had done or thought, but because of what they unchangeably were, born into the wrong kind of race or the wrong kind of class or drafted by the wrong kind of government, end quote. But then complications arise again, trying to think with Arendt in a different geographical and historical context, when she writes, quote, the calamity of the rightless is not that they are deprived of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or of equality before the law and freedom of opinion, formulas which were designed to solve problems within given communities, but that they no longer belong to any community whatsoever, end quote. Any theorization of the calamity of the rightless in the Americas would have to take into account indigenous conceptions of community, including the interrelationship between land and community for many peoples. Nevertheless, I start from Arendt's phrase today and again, because it presses so strongly for political theory, the question of foundational rights. To flesh out the first right and the right to have rights as a right to land, I'll turn now to the Peruvian Marxist Jose Carlos Mariátegui. Mariátegui consistently argued against humanitarian sentiment in Peru, whose roots he located in the advocacy of Bartolome de las Casas. Las Casas's rhetoric of an apostolic battle, Mariátegui argued, was outdated and unhelpful for contemporary struggles. What Mariátegui called for instead 
was to insist on the fact that what was called in his time the problem of the indigenous person is in fact the problem of an economic order. Quote, we are not content with demanding indigenous rights to education, culture, progress, love, and heaven, he writes. We start by categorically demanding the right to land. Notably, here he challenges taking second and third generation rights, education, and culture as foundational. Instead, he prioritizes the right to land. It is the first demand, the starting point of those who approach questions of indigenous rights, he says, from a socialist point of view. The import of this essay on the land problem in Peru is that it offers a path for socialist and indigenous struggles to come together. The major sources of wealth in Peru should be nationalized, he argues, and part of the state's role is to pass and enforce laws that shift land ownership, because, as he says, quote, nowhere has the division of agricultural property, or rather its redistribution, been possible without special expropriation laws that have transferred ownership of the land to the class that works it, end quote. Overall, Mariatsugi offers a defense of indigenous peoples in his words, not based on abstract principles of justice or sentimental traditionalist considerations, but on concrete and practical reasons of economic and social order. His essays work on two fronts. First, he is writing against the concentration of land ownership that occurred during the industrialization of agriculture. Such concentration maintained Peru's economy as a colonial economy in which Peru's interests and development were subordinated to the interests and the necessities of markets in London and New York. This subordination and dependence left Peru's workers in a precarious position. The example he gives is, if Egyptian cotton becomes cheaper than Peruvian cotton, then foreign buyers will abandon Peruvian cotton producers. Peruvian landowners thus, he says, whatever their illusions, of independence are in reality only intermediate agents of foreign capitalism. Second, and again, he is writing against a liberal and philanthropic orientation to indigenous rights. As Mike Gonzalez emphasizes in his reading of Mariatiki, he was not an indigenista. Instead, he aimed to shift the debate on indigenous people in Peru away from any question of their character or essence and toward the material conditions in which they lived and worked. Indeed, Mariatiki teaches that it is the ruling classes who want to describe indigenous people in terms of a non-modern or otherwise essential, essentialist character. For Mariatiki, indigenous people are poor not because of a lack of strength of will, but because of a colonial landholding system in which they were forced to work the land for the profit not just of the gamonales, but also of the foreign capital that invested in the agricultural and mining sectors. Because of how land was structured in Peru in the 1920s, Mariatigui's position was anti-colonial, not only in the sense of opposing settler exploitation, but also in his attempt to cut off foreign profit by taking on the question of land ownership on which it relied. Starting from materiality, particular questions of land and property, Mariatigui argued that the so-called problem in Peru was central to building what he called a united front, not a popular front bringing together middle classes with lower middle classes, but a unification of working classes, including indigenous people, miners, farm and factory workers, as well as artisans and some intellectuals. 
Each will maintain his own affiliation and ideas, he wrote of the front, but all should feel united by class solidarity, by the same revolutionary will, and by an urgent necessity. Crucially, Mariatiki's transformative call for land redistribution did not simply rely on legal conceptions of land. Rather, his concept of territory connotes not just bounded geography, but also history, narrative, culture, collectivity, and popular memory. In my reading, some of Mariatiki's late 1920s writings on land and indigenous rights, I have underscored three elements. The first is his critique of a liberal position that endorses humanitarian sentiment and aid without addressing the question of land. The second is his vision for socialism and indigenous movements to converge through addressing the question of land, mobilizing in a united front and acknowledging responsibilities to territory. The third is his prioritization of a right to land as foundational for other rights. And so it is from Ariatagi that I gained the insight that in the American context, we should read the first right of the right to have rights, the right on which other rights are based as a right to land, but of course, Besides Mariatiki, there are several other entry points into this position. Now, that Mariatiki offers such resources for thinking the present does not mean that his theories from the 1920s do not also need to be modified across place and time. One challenge of thinking with Mariatiki today has to do with his argument for nationalization. If socialist and indigenous movements are to come together, without an interest convergence in which the socialist voices are taken more seriously, then socialists today need to articulate a vision of nationalization that recognizes indigenous self-determination. Perhaps the state's role in shifting land ownership to the class that works it should also be understood as transitional. That just as rights claims could be a transitional language, so too could we understand the state as a transitional political form to challenge the assumption of the nation state as a taken for granted political form, heeds Glenn Coulthard's call to transcend the fantasy that the settler state apparatus, this is a quote, as a structure of domination predicated on our ongoing dispossession, is somehow capable of producing liberatory effects. End quote. So, having made uh, my argument here, outlined it here. And to get to the close of the talk, I want to say a few words about some of the stakes of what I'm offering today. First, one still often hears, to use an example I heard recently at a political theory workshop at a leading U.S. university, that freedom of religion is as American as apple pie. Such a claim misses the fact that state-caused denials of indigenous land rights are denials of a right to religion, insofar as many indigenous religions are tied to land-based practices. To casually make such a claim in the halls of our university buildings exemplifies what the historian Jeffrey Osler calls the particular skill of the US, namely inability to inflict catastrophic destruction all the while claiming to be benevolent. Second, I think there is an ethical point at play here. 
to prioritize a right to land makes an ethical demand on those of us who claim to defend human rights in our day jobs, but fail to extend that same kind of critical examinations to the locations where we teach our classes or return to at the end of our long days. To the extent that this teaching and dwelling remains easy and unexamined, we in the Americas are living in a very daily sense, according to an assumption of settler entitlement and indeed a legal entitlement to indigenous land. Third, scholarship on human rights in the US and Canada remains in general focused on political rights. And when it identifies contradictions, it remains focused on tensions or rights dynamics between political and economic rights. These scholarly emphases tend to overlook questions of land and such an oversight limits the ability of human rights scholarship to speak to the most pressing questions of the day. My working hypothesis here has been that scholarship on human rights becomes richer, more fruitful, or more applicable to today's struggles around, for instance, environmental activism, when said scholarship engages in dialogue, not only with native studies, but also with the history of transnational indigenous actors who have leveraged what Vine Deloria calls the language of the wider world, including human rights, to publicize the efforts, broken promises around treaties, to pursue land claims in court, and to argue for self-determination at national and international levels. To read human rights through this centuries-long history shows that a true defense of political and economic rights cannot be disentangled from a defense of indigenous land in the Americas. And this brings me to my concluding point. Fourth, and finally, with respect to stakes, foregrounding land rights is a theoretical response to perhaps the most long-standing demand of indigenous nations in the Americas, from the European invasion to protests in Northern Minnesota, still going on against line three today. That land allows said nations to realize their political, economic, and cultural rights. To listen to this demand in political and ethical theory, as well as in daily conversations about politics and rights, is to acknowledge that basic rights in the Americas, that the right to have rights in the Americas has always been about not simply speech, security, or subsistence, but the very land on which the sun still shines, the rivers still flow, and the grass still grows. Thank you.